What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Happy Saturday. I hope everyone's having a great weekend so far. We got a lot to talk about on today's podcast. We're going to be covering four topics specifically. We'll start off going through the New York Yankees' new $200 million jersey patch sponsorship deal. Then we'll transition into the details behind Lionel Messi's upcoming MLS debut, why the New York Times is disbanding its sports desk, and finally, the economics that forced ESPN to fire more than 20 on-air personalities. I think you guys are going to learn a lot from this episode, so let's get right into it. All right, so I figured the most logical place to start this podcast was with the New York Yankees' $200 million Jersey Pat sponsorship deal that was announced this week. It felt like Twitter erupted. I know I was shocked. A lot of other people were shocked. They'd been looking for a deal like this for at least a year now. But still, people couldn't believe that the New York Yankees, of all teams across Major League Baseball, were agreeing to a Jersey Patch sponsorship deal. Obviously, it's one of the most lucrative deals that would be in baseball today. But the pinstripes? Really? The pinstripes? So people were shocked. But we'll get to the shock in a minute. First, I want to cover the details. The deal is with Star Insurance. This isn't a new partner. The Yankees have worked with Star Insurance as their official commercial insurance partner for the past five seasons. Star Insurance is a 100-year-old company. Nothing to see here. It's about as vanilla as you could imagine. They're going to be paying the Yankees $25 million per year. $200 million overall. So it's an eight-year deal, $25 million per year, $200 million overall. The patches are going to appear on the jersey about a week from today, the 21st of July. The Yankees will officially debut them and start wearing them. Now, there's a few things to cover here. So it's not just the jersey patch. They're going to get signage in the outfield. On the uh, the home and away team bullpen, there's going to be outfield signage for Star Insurance as part of the deal as well. And look, this isn't necessarily a surprise. Like I said, Star Insurance is essentially risk-free. It's a 100-year-old insurance company. There's stability. The owner of Star Insurance, actually, is Maurice Hank Greenberg. He was friends with George Steinbrenner when he was alive, so there's a little bit of a connection there. And there's reports that the Yankees were actually offered more money from companies that were overseas or companies that weren't in existence nearly as long as Star Insurance. Those deals are reportedly in the context of $30 million, maybe $35 million per year. So the Yankees sacrificed you know, $5, $10 million a year to get a company that they felt was stable, that wasn't going to go away, and they could trust would be there over the course of this deal. Now, Legends negotiated this deal, which Yankees obviously has a relationship with. And it took about a year to negotiate. So I think more than anything, what that tells you is that these deals are harder to come by than other Major League Baseball teams thought they would be. For example, the Yankees are just the 13th team out of 30 MLB teams. So less than half the teams have Jersey Patch sponsors. Now, look, I don't want to overreact here. This is the first season where Jersey Patch sponsors are allowed in Major League Baseball. But I think it speaks clear that many teams haven't had nearly as much luck as they thought they would be able to to sell these patches. And what we've seen is they're probably going for a little bit less than these teams also imagined. The Yankees, as we just talked about, got the largest deal so far, $25 million per year. The second largest deal is the Boston Red Sox at $18 million per year with Mass Mutual. But the largest deal in sports is nearly two times bigger than the Yankees, which is the Golden State Warriors, they're getting $45 million per year for their jersey patch deal with Rakuten. So look, the Yankees, they, they make more money than anyone in baseball. Their revenue last year alone was nearly $700 million. Number two 
was the Dodgers at $600 million. So they're making considerably more money than virtually everyone else in baseball. The Red Sox were three at $500 million. So again, $200 million more than the Red Sox, right? That's a huge difference when it comes to annual revenue. The Yankees didn't necessarily need this. This deal is only going to increase their revenue by 4%. And I don't want to act like that's small, right? I tweeted this earlier in the week and some people were like, companies would love to increase their revenue by 4%. They would kill for that. And that's true. But you have to remember, this isn't just profit for the Yankees, right? Someone made an argument in my comments saying, you know, the margins on this deal are significantly higher than virtually everything else that the Yankees do from ticket sales to merchandise to, you know, whatever it is. And that's true. It's a sponsorship. They're putting a patch on the jersey. They're putting signs in the outfield. The margins are fantastic. But the thing that you have to remember is through the CBA that all the other teams agree to, 48% of all local revenue, that counts things like parking, concessions, sponsorships, which these patches fall under, is combined. All the teams in baseball combine them and then they split it evenly, right? So this deal is going to be put into a pile that all the other teams have access to. So it's not like the Yankees are just coming in, they're getting $25 million in additional revenue, and you're saying, oh, that's going to pay for Josh Donaldson's contract. He stinks. We're going to get rid of his deal on this alone. Or, you know, $200 million. That's a half or a quarter of what Shohei Otani is going to cost. That's not how this works, right? It's a, it's a convoluted process that's difficult to explain. It has a lot of moving parts, and the CBA is not easy to understand, 100%. I agree with that. But it's not like they're getting $25 million in additional profit every single year off the top of this deal. And the second part of this is like me personally, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I just don't like the Jersey patch sponsorships. The NBA, I actually think it's a little bit better than baseball. They seem to be integrated into the uniforms just a little bit cleaner. They're right there on the shoulder. You don't notice them nearly as much. They're on the opposite of the NBA logo. The team logo is much bigger right in the front of the jersey. They don't really take as much away from the jersey as I feel like they do in baseball. In baseball on the sleeve, they're much more noticeable than they are in other leagues. The NHL, same thing. I just don't love it. And I especially don't love it as a Yankees fan. People have to remember that the Yankees, they hold onto this tradition and this history more than any other team in baseball and, and even more in other leagues, right? In the NBA, in the NFL, whatever it is. The Yankees have this history and this tradition that they don't want to touch, right? Examples include, they don't allow players to have long hair. You have to cut your hair. You can't have long hair when you play for the Yankees. You can't have a beard when you play for the Yankees. So no facial hair. You got to cut your facial hair. They don't have a naming rights partner for their stadium. It's just called a Yankee stadium. There's a few other teams in baseball that have the same thing, but usually teams sell those naming rights. The Yankees have not done that. They can make millions of dollars every single year off of that. Is that next? I don't know. But another example of their history and tradition. They haven't had a City Connect uniform. Again, maybe that comes down the line, but other teams have done that throughout baseball. The Yankees have not done that. And now, what do you get in return? Players, they still have to cut their hair. They have to share their face. It's going to be called Yankee Stadium, no City Connect uniforms. But you're going to see a logo for an insurance company on the side of the pin stripes. I get it. If you're the team, $25 million is a lot of money to give up. You're going to do whatever you can to maximize value. But it's not like the Yankees were hurting for cash. And I do not think, I do not think that if George Steinbrenner was still alive today, that he would agree with this. It's against everything he stood for as the owner of the Yankees. And I do not believe that he would be on board with a deal like this, but it's done. We'll see what happens across sports. I think the big takeaway from this, in my opinion, is that if you look across Major League Baseball and the NHL, these jersey patch sponsorships and helmet sponsorships or whatever you want to call them, they are not nearly as popular as they have been in the NBA. 
The NBA is making boatloads of money on this. I just told you the Warriors are making $45 million every single year off their deal. A bunch of other teams are making 10, 15, 20 million dollars on their deals. And it's become much more popular than it has so far in baseball. Again, the teams that have them are the Padres with Motorola, the Red Sox with Mass Mutual, the Diamondbacks with Avnet, the Angels with FBM, Kroger for the Reds, Oxy Energy for the Astros, ADT for the Marlins, the Mets have New York Presbyterian Hospital, the Cardinals have Stiefel, Quick Right is the Braves, that deal just got announced this past week as well, Marathon for the Guardians, and Major for the Tigers. So a bunch of other teams have them, but only 13 out of the 30 have them so far. I think that's one of the things to look at, right? These deals aren't nearly as profitable as these teams might have imagined, despite despite the inventory and the amount of games that they're getting, right? 162 games in a baseball season, obviously more than the NBA and significantly more than other leagues like the NFL. So keep an eye on that. Will we see them across other sports leagues like the NFL? My guess is if the money's right, it's only a time. I'm not a fan of it. I'm sure many of you are not either, but we'll see what happens down the line. The next thing I want to talk about is Lionel Messi's debut. I'm sure some of you guys saw the video yesterday. Lionel Messi was in Publix in Miami, just walking around, a couple of people taking pictures, a couple of people asked for autographs, but he was not nearly, not nearly as swarmed and mobbed as he would have been in Argentina or Paris or Barcelona or virtually anywhere else in the world. It was an absolutely crazy sign to see. You know, uh, the, the scene was just memorable because he's in America now. He's in Miami. He's making his debut next week, July 21st, for Inter-Miami against Cruz Azul. Now, the, the reason why I want to talk about his debut specifically is because, obviously, it's Lionel Messi. It's going to be massive, right? We saw the ticket prices. We saw the deal that he got with Adidas and Apple and the team, right? He's going to make hundreds of millions of dollars in MLS. But the thing that I think we need to talk about specifically here is why is he not making his debut against another MLS team, right? If you're the MLS, you're making his debut against a Liga MX team, which I think is very unique. And if we had to speculate up a little bit here, I think it's fairly obvious why they're doing this. So for those of you who don't follow soccer religiously in the United States or the MLS that closely, the MLS signed a deal with Liga MX I believe it was last year, but this is the first year that it's taking place. So they signed a deal to partner on something called the League's Cup. It's essentially a month-long tournament that's going to see every team from MLS and Liga MX compete for this new tournament crown, right? So the League's Cup is this new tournament. All the teams from MLS are competing. All the teams from Liga MX are competing, and they're going to crown the champion of basically those two leagues. And the reason why they're doing this is important, right? MLS is obviously the main league here in the United States. But from a viewership perspective, Liga MX is actually the most watched soccer league in the U.S. So Liga MX is the professional soccer league in Mexico, and it is significantly more popular than the MLS and even the Premier League in the United States, right? Because of all the Spanish-speaking people that are in the United States today. So the reason why I think they're doing this is because if you're MLS and you want to kick this new tournament off, one, you want this tournament to be successful. So adding Messi to that is obviously going to help. But more importantly, you're going to get more viewers, actually, if you think about an MLS game versus an, uh, a Liga MX team than you will for just an MLS team versus another MLS team. And that's for the reason that I just mentioned. Liga MX gets significantly more viewers in the United States than MLS does. So if you're able to pitch Messi against another Liga MX team, you're going to get more viewers. You're going to guarantee that this, this new partnership that you have with Liga MX is more successful than it would have been beforehand 
because you're adding messy. So I think that's one portion. The second part I want to talk about this is the ticket prices. I'm sure a lot of you have seen Messi's ticket prices over the last few months. When his deal got announced, even speculation, the ticket prices shot up. People were buying ticket prices for $50, $60, $70 that morning. They were $600 or $1,000 that night. They got incredibly expensive. They went up hundreds of percent at a time. And it was deservedly so, right? Some of these arenas only have 15,000, 20,000 seats. And when the supply and demand gets in this huge imbalance, the ticket prices are going to increase. But something's happening now that I don't think many people realize. And it happens across sports. It's not just MLS. I've seen the Lakers do it. A bunch of other teams have done it too. What happened is a bunch of new tickets are coming on the market, right? So if you went to Google right now or Ticketmaster and you looked up Inter-Miami tickets for Messi's debut, I'm looking at it right now, maybe it changes in the next 24 hours or whatever, but you can buy tickets on the primary market from the team for $250 to $400. Decent seats too. We're not talking about nosebleeds here. $250 to $400 from the team, Inter-Miami's official Ticketmaster page. And the reason why this happened is a couple things. First off, Inter-Miami likely released new tickets that were initially withheld, right? So the ticket market at first on the secondary market, that wasn't all of the primary market tickets that had already been bought up. Inter-Miami was holding tickets back to release at a later date. They've now done that, and there's new rows or new seats available that weren't previously available. Right. So that's one thing. Inter-Miami likely released tickets that were initially withheld and are now on the market. The second part of this, which is confirmed and is obviously happening, is Inter-Miami has added seats to their stadium for his debut. It looks like they've added about 3,000 seats in total in the northeast and the southeast corners of the stadium for his debut. Again, you can see this on Ticketmaster. You can see where the extra seats are, where you can find seats for $250 to $400. And it's kind of unfortunate, right? Because people were buying tickets for $1,000, $1,200 I saw online for his debut. And if you would have just waited, now you can get tickets on the primary market, not even the secondary market. You can buy them from the team for a quarter of that price. Sort of unfortunate, but sometimes that's how it goes in the ticket market. It's kind of like the Wild West. Tickets get put up, tickets get taken down, primary market appears, seats get added, whatever it is. But if you want to go to the match, my point is simple. Tickets are significantly cheaper today than they were even a month ago or two months ago when it got announced. And expectations for Messi? Expect him to play. CBS is reporting that Messi is going to be a full go for the July 21st Leagues Cup match against Cruz Azul. The important thing to remember here is that Messi, he was essentially playing from July 2022 until recently, right? Nonstop. He was playing for PSG, the World Cup, and the international games for Argentina. He has had about a month's break since then. His legs are refreshed. And he is supposed to be a full go for his debut. I don't know. Maybe he plays, you know, half the match. Maybe he plays the full match, whatever. But you're going to get your money's worth. There's a reason why they added extra seats. And there's a reason why they added extra tickets to the primary market. The GOAT, Lionel Messi, will be playing in this match. All right. The next thing we're going to talk about is the New York Times shutting down its sports division. Now, this is another one of those things that I think just caught people off guard this week. The New York Times... Their sports section, it's an iconic piece of sports history. It's been around forever. I'm sure many of you grew up reading it. I'm sure many of you read it to this day. They have excellent long-form journalism pieces. It's great. It's great. Whatever you think about the paper in general, their sports section is great. It's been a huge piece of sports history and so forth. So it was pretty surprising to see that they're shutting it down. Many people were shocked. There was outrage, etc. But one of the things that I think back to is like, the writing was on the wall for this over the last year. If you talk to people that were at the New York Times, they were constantly worried. 
Because when you acquire, the New York Times acquired, remember, The Athletic for $550 million. They spent half a billion dollars acquiring The Athletic. Everyone knows what The Athletic is. They focus on sports. Now, again, it's a little bit different than what The New York Times does from a coverage perspective. One is like long-form journalism, and one is like you're focusing on teams and whatnot. But you guys get the point. They spent half a billion dollars on The Athletic. So many of the sports writers at The New York Times were like, hey, where does this leave us, right? Were you guys just buying this for extra digital subscribers? Were you trying to eliminate the sports section? There's obviously a considerable amount of overlap now. Like, what happens here? This has gone on for a year where nothing has happened. But again, the New York Times came out this week and they said, we're shutting down the sports division. We're not firing anyone. There's about 35 staff members that work in the sports department. You're not going to be laid off. You're going to be assigned new roles in the newsroom. So, right, you may be covering, you know, corporate America. You may be covering stocks. You may be covering climate change. I don't know, right? I'm just making up examples at this point. But they transition them to new roles in the newsroom outside of sports. You're not going to work for The Athletic. You're not going to write for The Athletic. You're going to be working in the New York Times newsroom in different areas. So you're not getting fired. You're going to be here, but you're not covering sports anymore. Obviously, this is a very difficult situation, right? You have some people that have worked for The New York Times covering sports for 20, 30 years, and now all of a sudden you're just assigning them a new topic, right? A new industry to cover that they may have no idea about, right? So I think that's a huge piece of it too, is like you're putting people in a position that's probably not one desired, but two, in a position where they can be successful. In a lot of ways, it may be an industry that they don't know anything about or cover and they have to learn. So difficult position. But the other part of this that's kind of unique is there could be a little bit of union busting going on here, right? Everyone knows that the New York Times is a union shop. The Athletic is not. So the union is not happy about this. They're actually arguing with the New York Times about this right now. But the one way that this could be union busting is you're not firing people, right? So you're keeping these employees on. They're still union members, et cetera. But by transitioning them to roles that are not sports anymore, you're opening the opportunity for these people to leave, right? If it's something they do not want to do, if they get another job or an opportunity to go back to sports, something that they believe they're best fitted for, maybe they end up leaving. The, the sports section is now covered by the athletic. So that's one less employee from a union perspective. Obviously, this is speculation at this point. We don't know what's going to happen. These people are still employed. But my point is relatively simple, right? Like when you buy a sports asset that does exactly what your sports division does, albeit a little bit different, but similar kind of concept for half a billion dollars, those jobs are always going to be at risk. They were always going to be at risk. And the people that were employed by the sports division knew it. That doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't mean it doesn't suck for them. I feel bad for them. Anyone that loses their job, super unfortunate, 100% guaranteed. But the writing was on the wall. People should have seen this coming. The Athletic, they got bought for $550 million. You don't buy them, you know, just for a million subscribers, $550 million. You're going to eliminate positions where you can when there's overlap. This is one of those things where from a mergers and acquisition perspective, it always made sense that there would be opportunities for The Athletic to cover the New York Times sports division. And it looks like that's what's happening. Now, the last topic I want to talk about today is ESPN. Now, this happened a couple of weeks ago, but I want to talk about it specifically because I feel like a lot of people have been reporting on it wrong and speculating on it wrong over the last few weeks. Now, I think most of you probably know what happened if you're interested in sports business and you're following this podcast. ESPN laid off about 20 on-air personalities a few weeks ago. That included some really recognizable names. We're talking about Max Kellerman. We're talking about Jeff Van Gundy, Keyshawn Johnson, Steve Young, Matt Hasselbeck, Susie Colbert, Todd McShay. 
David Pollack, Ashley Brewer, Rob Nikovich, right? Like big name people, on-air people that got laid off, no longer working at the network. The Morning Show with Jay Williams and Keyshawn Johnson and uh, Max Kellerman is no longer happening, right? Like just some big, big, big changes. And part of this, you know, everyone's screaming online, ESPN's going broke, cable's going to zero, go, go, go broke. And like, there's certainly an aspect of ESPN's business changing, but most of this is just like not reality. And I want to explain why this is true. So if you look at ESPN's business today, they used to have 100 million cable subscribers, 100 million, biggest cable channel on the planet. They used to have 100 million subscribers in the United States on cable. They no longer have 100 million. They have 74 million, right? So they've lost 26 million, call it, subscribers on cable over the last decade. They had 100 million in 2011. They now have 74 million today. So over the last 12 years, they've lost 26 million household cable subscribers. But 74 million households is so much. It is so big still. And I want to give you an illustration of how big this is. So ESPN is in 74 million households in the United States. Each one of those subscribers, every subscriber that has ESPN on their cable bundle, pays $10 per month through that cable bundle back to ESPN. So again, I'm not great at public math, but 74 million households with cable with ESPN, they pay $10 a month. That's $740 million a month in revenue that ESPN still gets from cable. $740 million a month or $2.22 billion per quarter, right? So $740 million a month in, ad in revenue that ESPN gets just from the cable bundle still or $2.2 billion per quarter from the cable bundle. And you have to remember what happens when they go to commercial break. ESPN's still getting paid from that. We're not counting ad solds or anything like that, right? So just from the cable bundle, ESPN is still an extremely, extremely profitable business. They're making a ton of money every single month off cable. So on one hand, like the business is great. Nothing is necessarily wrong. We have also seen layoffs happen numerous times at ESPN. In 2015, they fired 300 employees. In 2017, they fired 250 employees. In 2020, they fired 300 employees and eliminated 200 positions on their website that they were trying to fill, right? So 500 jobs basically got crushed in 2020 during COVID. We don't know what number they're gonna end up with this year. They've obviously fired at least 20 people on air. They say more people are coming. They fired a bunch of people behind the scenes too, producers, other people like that at ESPN. So it could still get ugly. But my point is simple. ESPN's business is not dead. It's transitioning, right? They're trying to thread this needle where they're losing billions of dollars on their DTC business. That includes... Disney Plus, Hulu, et cetera. But they have, you know, they have almost 25 million subscribers on the ESPN Plus bundle already. So they're trying to walk this tightrope where they're transitioning people from the cable bundle to DTC model. And the important thing to remember here is that cable's not going to zero. Most industry analysts actually believe that it's going to bottom out maybe around 50 million or something like that, right? Maybe it goes down over time, new people don't get cable. But live sports and live news still drive this, right? If you look at the most watched shows on cable television every year, you guys have all seen the charts. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's like 90 out of 100 or 80 out of 100 of the top shows every single year on cable are either live news or sports. That's what dominates cable. And it's because it's appointment viewing. You're guaranteed for football, essentially. You're guaranteed for a primetime game to get 15, 20 million people to watch that game. It's absolutely outrageous numbers and advertisers are willing to pay a premium for that, one. But two, people need cable in a lot of instances to be able to access these games. So the ESPN cable bundle is not going to zero. They're still making an absolute killing on it. 
But when Bob Iger came back as CEO of Disney, I guess it was last year at this point, he said that he was going to be eliminating thousands of jobs. He wanted to cut 7,000 employees and implement cost savings equivalent to $5.5 billion. Now, look, if ESPN eliminates 500 jobs, which I don't think they're going to do, that seems like an outrageous amount compared to what they've already eliminated so far. It's probably closer to like 150, maybe 200 again. That's a small fraction of the 7,000 that Disney's going to be eliminating as they restructure the company overall. So this is from parks, it's from experiences, it's from products, it's from entertainment divisions. It's from a bunch of other places too. It's not just ESPN. Now, look, I get that this doesn't this doesn't make the headlines, right? To say, oh, ESPN's still making a lot of money. They're just reducing kind of their headcount. They're getting things in order. They're trying to eliminate some costs and they're trying to streamline their business. That's not nearly as sexy online as yelling ESPN's going broke, cable's dead. I get it, but that's the truth. That's the way you need to be looking at it. ESPN is still a cash cow for Disney. They're making hundreds of millions, nearly a billion dollars a month off just cable fees alone for all these households, 74 million households that still have it. So next time someone comes up to you and they say, ESPN is dead, the network is dying, they're yada, 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 they stink, everyone's getting fired. That's not the truth. The business is changing. Maybe we look at it five years from now or six years from now or a decade from now and we say, hey, look, cable's dead. They didn't transition well to DTC. Things are changing. They haven't been able to find a strategic partner like Bob Iger said he wanted to do earlier this year. Amazon's not interested. Apple's not interested. None of the betting companies are interested. ESPN's dead. Maybe that ends up being the case. But today, that is not the case. That is not what's happening. ESPN is still a cash cow. It's one of the most profitable units for Disney. And it's something that people need to turn their head around to because cable is still a tremendous business for a company like ESPN. All right, everyone, that's it for today. Have a great weekend. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do me a favor and just share with one of your friends. That's all I ask for. One friend. If each of you shares this with one friend, we will double the listenership overnight. Again, I don't like public math, but I think that's how it works. Have a great weekend and we'll talk on Monday.